Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. So welcome to CTO Confessions, Japji. It's great to have you on board, sir. Thanks for having me, TC. I look forward to it. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, so I'm the chief technology officer of a company called Matterport. Um, before that, I've, I've done a large variety of startups as well as larger companies, um, either as a CTO or, or uh, some, some level of executive leadership uh, in the technology and product side of things. Um, I've worked and spent time at Microsoft, did two tours of duty there, uh, led very different projects. Uh, did a tour of duty through Google about six and a half years there, uh, helped run the engineering side of Google Analytics and then YouTube long form media, did a couple of startups, um, stumble upon, uh, and most recently prior to this Carta, which is a FinTech company, uh, deals with equity. Um, and, uh, now at Matterport, uh, doing you know, uh, a ton of work around computer vision uh, and deep spatial indexing. So really, you know, my passion around uh, spending time in deep learning, machine learning, and, you know, enhancing the AI capabilities of uh, photogrammetry. Brilliant. I love it. So actually, it's a nice segue. No, actually, we're not going to segue there. I'm going to segue backwards for a second because I'm fascinated yep. by your journey. Uh, you know, I mean, these are big players that you've uh, worked for, eBay, Microsoft, Google. Um, what was it like working for them? What, what was your kind of takeaway from your journey there? Did they kind of define your kind of leadership and how you kind of uh, role as a tech leader now? Um, absolutely. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to have some uh, great leaders, mentors, uh, managers, in, in my career over the various components. Uh, um, and one of the things that always, you know, strikes me is the fact that early on, you know, very early on in my career at, at Microsoft, I had a great manager who was willing to give me a ton of room uh, to learn um, and really develop in, in various areas as a leader, as a manager, as a technical leader. And so I, I had the opportunity to kind of lead, uh, you know, a horizontal engineering uh, effort. And then, you know, I was like, hey, I want to experiment with uh, product and program as well. So he gave me kind of a full on vertical and said, go run, you know, this vertical and then, and then the other. And so from a scale size, you know, perspective, I was able to test out kind of my, um, my, you know, limits, so to speak, on both a horizontal and a vertical basis. So that was super helpful. Um, and, and, you know, I learned a lot as a result. When I got to Google, it's, a, it's funny, like Google's a very similar company to Microsoft in many ways, but different than others. Uh, one of the places it's really different is they have a super high value on individual tech leadership. So, you know, they management was a four letter word, like they, were, they didn't even have a management ladder uh, when I got there in 2005. Really? And so, you know, the, the key being how much do you spend time and energy in, in the t individual tech leadership? And so there I learned, you know, regardless of what you do, you as a technology leader have to stay technical. And so one of the things I try and do still to this day is uh, write code. So, you know, it might not be production code, but I still write code 
that I um, that I experiment on the side, and you know, occasionally it will make production uh, through some avenue or the other, but uh, might not be direct, but you know, for sure something that I like to work with. Um, and as a result, you have at least some level of understanding of what uh, you know every individual contributor on the team is doing. And the same thing applies for product. If you're about to go envision a product, you know, you've got to write the PRD. You've got to write the understanding of what, what you really truly want to build. Can you make that uh, cutting, you know, sharp enough um, where somebody can understand it? You have the use cases defined and so on. So yeah. that's been super important as, as, uh, as we've kind of grown over my career. And the last uh, couple of things I'd mentioned is like just in the, in my time at eBay, one of the few things I, you know, spent time on was really understanding design and brand a lot more. I, the, you know, I was fortunate to find some great partners who I learned a lot from. Again, uh, in terms of you know design, how do you think? How do you actually build um, and make that useful for the end user? And then how do you brand it? Uh, you know, typically as a engineering and a technology leader, you know what a platform and a framework is, but knowing what a brand platform and a brand framework is, I had no idea. I didn't, I didn't even know they used those words uh, in the first <laughs> place. And so I learned yeah. a lot about, you know, that as well. So I would say most of the uh, time I, I love learning. And so that's been part of my uh, uh, career is like been learning a lot of different things that have been fortunate enough to go learn something new every single time. Uh, the last company was at Carta, was a fintech. I knew nothing about fintech when I got there, and that was really the reason I went there. I'm like, I told the the CEO who's hiring me at that time, like, I don't know anything about anything, to be perfectly honest. So, you know, as long as you're willing to take a chance, I'm I'm in. Let's go do this. Wow, brilliant. I mean, that's a, uh, um, I, I can see kind of real benefits of of. Um, f- first of all, uh, you know, kudos to you to for for kind of going for something that's kind of out of your comfort zone. Uh, and and wanting to kind of take that position, but also kudos to the company for taking you on to allow you to to exercise that. I, I'm kind of curious around the benefits of having somebody that hasn't got what I would call hardcore veteran experience in a, a particular field. I, what were the benefits that you kind of brought uh, not having that experience? Um, yeah, over the last few, you know, maybe the decades, I've been in this industry now for 25 years. Um, but the last decade, at some point, you realize you know a lot of the patterns that exist in technology. Um, and, you know, if you think of us as uh, building widgets or software widgets, so to speak, uh, the software widgets, you know, the patterns, the, the way you build them are, are very similar. The application might be very different, but the, uh, the building, the process is very similar. So that's kind of like just one, one aspect. Number two, um, in senior leadership positions, this is my, my point of view, a lot of it starts to become about people. How are you actually going to manage, maintain, build a high-performing team? Um, and, you know, as much as the technology side is, is very important, and, and obviously that's, that's my mainstay, but at the same time, I think the people side, uh, uh, as they say, the EQ and IQ component, the people side is equally important. So it really does become about how are you going to build a strong performing, highly executing team uh, that really goes a long way. So at that point, to my point about software widgets, 
you know, as long as you have a, a way of building a strong team, then that goes uh, very far. So to me, that uh, those two things combined, you know, uh, if you do it right, you hopefully can uh, go fit in any role uh, as long as the people side, you know, works for you. Brilliant. I love that. And you kind of mentioned uh, something that I'm, I, I loved when I was a software developer um, and, and I look for this in other areas of business and leadership. Uh, you mentioned patterns. Okay. So are there a set of patterns that maybe could be documented that, you know, chief technology officer patterns of leadership or, or what have you? I mean, it's a, a curious subject. It is. It certainly is. Uh, I, I have to admit that on occasion, I've thought about it. Uh, on, a, on definite occasion, we've joked about it, like as a leadership <laughs> team. You know, I've worked with some of the people that I'm working with today in the past. And, and you know, there's patterns and there's anti-patterns as well that you kind of look at and you're like, Oh, we should definitely not do that because we know that that did not work as, as an example or, or you're watching somebody else do that uh, as well so i think there's definite components of patterns and anti-patterns uh that you know one should write about and, and i'm not saying i'm unique to this at all to be perfectly honest i'm pretty sure uh folks you know in the industry who've, who've done this uh for a certain period of time uh have Kind of realize some of these patterns and anti-pattern you know uh, and occasionally you'll see books written about it podcasts about it that actually talk to uh, a, a ton of those um but yeah i've you know, yeah. thought about it i don't think uh, i'm the writing type so i haven't really written anything about I mean, it i think the interesting thing about these kind of patterns is not so much you have to kind of follow them to the nth degree but they set your thinking off it, they set a kind of mindset mindset shift that then get yeah. you to kind of maybe apply bits to the kind of thing. But I also love picking up patterns in the kind of software world and saying, this is good enough to get going with. It's like your kind of uh, MVP almost, you know, we'll work with that and then we'll kind of tailor it to the side. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, I always tell people, like one of the reasons I got into management and then leadership was I found that, you know, software actually has a lot more defined patterns. People have a lot more undefined patterns. And, you know, finding out what that, uh, pattern was what was really uh, got me interested in, in, in people management. It's like knowing what what makes a person tick, developing that spidey sense of uh, at a person level, a team level, and then an organization level or a company level. Like, how do you actually get that spidey sense all built out so you are building that highly performing team and company? Uh, and that's certainly been very uh, interesting uh, learning, at least for me. Brilliant. Yeah. I was going to jump now into what your company does, Matterport do, but while we're on the subject, I think it's a kind of nice kind of segue into that. So um, the kind of pattern of leadership that you uh, generally, you know, how do you roll as a, as a leader in your organization? Sure. I think on the, um, so this was one of my mentors at Google and, and he mentioned this and I, it's always stuck with me. He called it a T or an L-shaped style of leadership, which uh, which really says that at any given time, a leader needs to be broad enough in their purview or, or the scope of, of the role that they have and deep in at least one, if not a few areas. Um, and, you know, I've taken that to mean at any given point in time, I should know uh, what's going on within the organization, but I typically spend uh, a lot more in-depth time with a team or a group. And so that could be like anywhere from two to six weeks, you know, to a quarter, uh, depending on like uh, size and scale of work. 
um, and then kind of rotate from there. So by the time then you come back uh, uh, and you look at the team again uh, or the area or the project, then you can actually go and make sure that you know everything is going correctly. But at the same time, you know and understand intrinsically uh, what is actually happening in that uh, in that product, project or product. Um, so I think that's kind of number one. It's the uh, the breadth and depth uh, mm. in certain areas. Yeah. Uh, probably the second one is the the team itself. Um, both Microsoft and Google, in my opinion were built on the principle, if you hire right, everything after that just becomes easier and uh, to follow. Yeah. Um, and so to me, I've always used that. If you, if you hire the right person, uh, it makes life a lot easier. You don't have to be sitting around trying to like micromanage them on a daily basis. And I have zero interest in doing that on a personal basis as well. And so when you, uh, so that's kind of like the number one, two adage for this one is um, hire rights. Spend more time that you think you need to in hiring. And if you do that, then most of your ailments go away kind of magically because the, the right person is doing the right thing in the right role and you don't have to do it anymore. Like yes. you, you did that in the past. Now you've kind of pulled yourself out of it and you don't have to do that anymore. You know that the work product is going to be of high execution, craftsmanship and quality that then, you know, you don't have to worry about it. Brilliant. Excellent. And coming back to your uh, creating the high performing teams, you know, you mentioned around hiring the right people. I mean, obviously that's a challenge, you know, because finding, you know, they're like, they're like um, gold, they're like diamond, they're like, they're gold encrusted uh, diamonds, you know, um, is that the right way around? Now, let me start again. That's the wrong way around. Yeah. <laughs> you get the point. Whichever way. So, yeah, yeah, whichever way. Um, so, how do you go about getting the right team members? Is there any kind of skill? Is there anything that you've kind of figured out a magic trick? A magic trick that uh, gets you the right people that you need. So the thing I found is there's no magic trick, but there's definitely a time commitment. Um, so the first higher performing team I built was the Google Analytics team, um, and I would tell you, like for the first three or four months, I spent um, eighty percent of my time in hiring. Wow. I spent just a tremendous amount. Uh, and, but once I'd made that investment, what happens is you've got that initial set of team members. They start pulling more really good team members. Um, and, and it kind of goes from there. So, you know, as they say, like, uh, A's higher, A's and A pluses, you know, B's higher, C's and D's, uh, wow. uh as a result. And so if you've done that initial hiring well, um, then everyone's hiring that next caliber, really helping up, update the team. The culture is something that starts to get well-known. Uh, and then, you know, after that initial three or four month period, like 70% of that team member uh, set was referrals. Each of these people pulled one or two people off their own personal network in saying, you will have amazing fun and a strong technology problem that we are trying to solve because we had we had some really interesting problems to solve. We were a massively scaled system. Uh, you know, eighty percent of the web uses Google Analytics uh, to date, and you know the, the size and scale of that system is was humongous. And so we had an amazing, interesting problem to solve. Um, the people that you were pulling in were great, 
And then once you start to pull your own personal network in, you're committed not only to the team, but to the culture and, and how to improve that on a regular basis. So it, it becomes a kind of almost a, a virtual mm -hmm. cycle, self-fulfilling virtual cycle that kind of improves that uh, uh, setup as you go forward. And then it's just a little bit of tweak on process and such to make sure that everyone kind of stays happy, like you, everyone's being productive, they're getting to do what they're passionate about and such. Uh, but I think it starts to my point about hiring. It starts with the hiring. If you got that right, you spent that time and effort, you do that. Uh, I know people say that it's hard to hire. I'll tell you, like, it's actually not that hard. It's it's just time. Time. Keeps people, when the people say that, they're, they're not willing to spend that time uh, to hire. If you're good with the recruiters, if you respond to them, if you're good with the candidates, if you respond to them, if you give them a fair shake and, and you start to hire, that cycle works really well. You can hire anywhere at any time. Uh, without much of an issue, um, in my opinion. So. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's great advice. I, I love your kind of perspective on that. It's almost like, um, uh, you know, if you're going to go and buy something really, really expensive, I mean, engineers, uh, really good engineers are, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not coming off the kind of uh, uh, under a dollar uh, shelf, you know, kind of thing. They're, they're expensive. So, uh, you know, whenever I'm buying something with a high ticket price, I, I, I get Excel sheets out. You know, I start to do the research because I really want to know what I'm getting and and where does it sit within the uh, kind of spectrum of uh, stuff out there. So I guess, you know, investing that time to find the right person. Igo, it's a tough question I'll, for you. I'll yeah. give you a totally random analogy, but I think might be pertinent. Um, so in my time at eBay, uh, went and visited a uh, Hong Kong and we met a seller and he told me something that was really interesting, which, which helped me build an adage, uh, which was at any given point, people are looking for the best quality product at the right, right price point. Uh, and the way this kind of came about was uh, the seller said, look, I sell uh, apparel. I sell it at, let's say the, uh, oh, actually, let me go back just a, just a tad. He started by saying in China, he held up a bottle, bottle of water or something. In China, we don't ask you, how much does this cost? We ask you, how much do you want it to cost? <laughs> he said, because I can give you that same thing for 12 bucks, five bucks and a dollar. Uh, the, the $12 person who's kind of selling the, the thing is like, oh, I'm the high end you know, price point. The $5 is basically saying I'm equally good, but at a lower price point. And the dollar person is like, hey, I'm, I'm super cheap and I'm almost as good. Yeah. And so it's purely quality at that point that you actually do it. And he's like, I sell apparel at the $5 price point. So I'm trying to compete with the, the top level person who's doing that. And I'm trying to, you know, undercut and tell the, the $1 person that they're, hey, they're not good enough. And yeah. so that's my like brand building. That's my price point. That's how I'm actually kind of going into market, which I thought was really interesting. And so, uh, you know, to your question about how you do the research, you're doing the research because you're trying to find that thing at the right uh, particular price point. Uh, and I think the same thing kind of applies in hiring. Like you've got to figure out what you're looking for, senior leaders, uh, uh, you know, uh, out of college IC developer or, or somewhere in the middle range. And then you have to go and find the right person at that, that uh, level. Brilliant. I love it. So coming back, we finally now got to, um, uh, you know, we've done some great stuff on leadership, uh, you know, how you roll as a leader and how you create teams. Um, but I really want to speak about your company as well, because this is a fascinating company. You mentioned, you know, you're creating a digital twin solution uh, for a very kind of particular niche, uh, a need out there uh, for Matt, uh, through Matterport. So 
what's your what's the problem your company is solving in the market? Yeah. So if you think about it today, the the built world uh, represents about two hundred and thirty trillion dollars worth of investment area. So that's all the buildings across the globe. Wow. Um, you know, uh, we estimate that somewhere in the range of twenty billion. Uh, uh, buildings or spaces um, in the world, and so when you think about that uh, from from that perspective, um, most of that stuff is done on paper today. So even if you you know uh, did something, there's there's um, it's done on paper, and every building is going through what we call a design, build, and operate life cycle. So at any given point, you're doing some amount of uh, designing of a change. So, for example, in retail stores, the average, I believe, is every seven years they kind of go through a full remodel and a recycle. Some of the more um, uh, current fast fashion stores, for example, have you know they're changing on a on a biweekly basis. They're wow. changing their layouts. They're changing a lot of their uh, you know uh, merchandising on a biweekly basis. So they're doing all that design and such, either you know runtime in, in store or you know coming from corporate, and so that design build life cycles around us. You know, even if you think about you on a personal level in your house, like you know, one might not be updating their house on a uh, let's say every three years or so, but on average, if you know everybody on the planet is doing that, that's a lot of houses being remodeled, updated, or done something to. On a regular basis, yes. uh, and so there's a ton of change in the ecosystem as a result. All happening on paper. So the whole notion of this uh, for us is digitizing the space, so you don't have to no no longer have to do it on paper. Whether it's from you know selling a house, uh, whether it's commercial real estate, where they're actually building things, uh, uh, whether it's construction and architecture, where as you're building stuff, you um, you you're actually taking you know, scans of the place to show how accurately you're building to that spec specification. So if you think about it from uh, from our perspective, our whole notion is, can we give you a accurate 3D digital twin? Um, I'll mention one thing here. So a lot of people don't understand uh, the difference between a actual true dimensionally accurate uh, twin versus like a 360 panel. So in a 360 panel, all you're doing is you're essentially building a photosphere. So most of us have done that. We've kind of like walked around with our phone and camera and kind of built a, a 360 panel. In a dimensionally accurate 3D twin, uh, the additional thing that we add is this notion of what we call a mesh. Uh, in the old days, it used to be called a point cloud. To actually, point clouds are very expensive. They're, they've got a lot of data to them. And so people would generate a mesh, which was like like uh, connected points in this point cloud, you would build polys or triangles out of them and kind of build a mesh mm. as a result. And that mesh now represents accurate information about the uh, geometric capabilities of that building. And that's what you use for construction, for architecture, and so on. And so we married the two. We married the concept of, of the panel, the high resolution panels to the concept of the mesh. And that's what we uniquely did. And so that part to me is, is where, what really makes uh, uh, Matterport, uh, you know, the market leader today. Um, and from there, you know, the next phase of this is really around datafication. And so 
truly understanding what's in the space. Um, we're one of the few companies poised for that because we have a lot of internal information. So we know, for example, if this is a building, let's say it's a hotel, this is the lobby. We can understand that we, we have a deep learning network that infers all that data. We know what rooms there are. We know how many objects there are in the room. So we can now offer that to the, the hotel. Hotels go through a renovation cycle every, you know, so, so many years. And we can offer that to the, the hotel and say, um, okay, I want to search and say, how many rooms have not been carpeted in the last 10 years? And they can do that as a datafication query or a, what we call a deep spatial index query. So they can understand that. How many bulbs are out? How many, you know, any of that stuff is uh, the, the next phase of, of, of the business uh, is really around that datafication and yeah. enabling you to do things that are stronger. Could you try? Yeah, so uh, yeah. is it like kind of, um, it's okay. Uh, so is it like uh, creating an inventory? So you're able to automatically create an inventory of what's in the place, the number of switches, uh, as you say, the light fittings. Uh, could, does it kind of cover things like furniture as well or um, fixtures? It does. It, uh, so it goes all the way down to, you know, the micro level detail. So that's exactly right. It's uh, the inventory of uh, items, um, objects, um, furniture, uh, fixtures. Um, my favorite is like, um, you know, take a large scale commercial real estate uh, firm. They've got 10 billion square meters of space uh, around the world. So it's a global company. Um, at any given point, if you just assume for a second, they have to change the uh, carpet uh, in this space. Um, and let's say even half of that is uh, carpeted. Uh, you know, that's almost 500 million square meters of carpet that has to be changed every year. Wow. Uh, and then if, let's say they have sprinkler systems installed every two meters or so, um, that's 5 billion sprinklers that have to be inspected every year. Yeah. Uh, and so you can think about the massive scale of, of what does that look like uh, and the ability to be able to design document and understand that on a regular basis is really, truly uh, what we're helping and enabling uh, our customers to do. Um, maybe the last thing I'll mention about the company is we're truly an open platform. And so both on the input side, you know, the types of cameras that we take and, and allow you to kind of process through our, our, our SaaS pipeline. But the, even on the output side, we we have APIs and SDKs for developers to kind of come in and build uh, a set of integrations or applications or add-ons uh, into our marketplace. So it really helps us think about uh, everything uh, you know in the gamut, but truly where that platform in the middle and, and and the Matterport space becomes that unique currency that we can move forward. Brilliant. Oh. I've got so many questions on this because yeah. the great thing about the platform that you created is um, it, it solves an immediate problem. So it's taking stuff off paper and making stuff, stuff representable. Uh, uh, people can look at it uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, they can get a feel for the place, uh, you know, uh, what have you. Um, from a, a kind of deeper business perspective, I mean, where's the kind of cost savings here? Because I mean, I can think of a few here, but where, where have you seen the kind of really low hanging fruit for companies uh, to increase their bottom line, you know? So I think uh, on a regular basis, um, the insurance example, let's take that one uh, just uh, for the sake of argument here. Um, you have to send an adjuster out to a space. They typically can do one and maybe two spaces a day. 
um, and they're a highly paid employee. Um, so let's say we just park them at 150 bucks uh, uh, an hour uh, type of person versus I can send a scan technician in who might actually be 15 or 20 bucks an hour um, to their location. And now the adjuster doesn't have to go travel, you know, go do that. They could probably only hit that one. Now they can probably hit five or six. So for an insurance company, that is a massive, you know, uh, uh, price performance uh, compared to actually sending an adjuster to every single incident. Yeah. Uh, plus, different parts of the country have different, you know, expense levels, and you have to maintain adjusters across the board. This actually allows you to now potentially get to a lower price adjuster, you know, outside of of that location, and still be able to uh, uh, to meet your demands of the customers uh, uh, as a result. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, another uh, large uh, franchise company um, that might sell coffee has 35,000 global stores. And they, I didn't know this before I talked to them, but they actually change their, um, their stores uh, on a monthly basis. It has new signage, new layout, new merchandising. Uh, on a monthly basis, and so they roll out these, you know, design updates uh, on a global level on a on a monthly basis. So you can imagine the amount of time it takes to actually go do that. And if you don't have a digital twin, it is just that much more expensive. Multiply times the global nature of this uh, uh, piece, and so the uh, so almost all of uh, our enterprise clients are definitely in the space of of you know solving that problem. Um, a third area is, is just residential real estate. Uh, so one of our partners uh, in the U.S., through um, uh, the real estate uh, portal, they found that um, every time they use a Matterport model to promote the space, it actually sells faster by a week and is about 14%. Uh, you get more in revenue when you sell it using a Matterport model. Yeah. And that just is, and so they have 100%, like all of their listings are on, on Matterport as a result, because they're like, look, this is the, the way to go, it's how we sell. And obviously during the COVID era, when people couldn't visit open houses, or if you're trying to buy a house, you know, outside of town in a different location, it's a fantastic way to immerse yourself into the into the twin experience as well. And so to me, this, uh, the use cases are endless, like, and, um, and that's why we have, you know, an amazing set of customers who are, very very happy with what we provide as a service today uh because we're actually solving a a very important need for them brilliant i love that i could talk about this for hours but unfortunately i'm time I'm time bound by the podcast um no I, what i want to do is come back to you now and and what's your passion what's the thing that really rocks your boat because we've had some really great conversations uh, offline but tell the audience about what is it that rocks your boat uh so I think I, I mentioned this too. There's two things that have been really interesting is uh, one of the things that came out of COVID was, um, you know, we realized that one could work from anywhere. Um, so uh, my family and I, uh, we packed our bags and we moved uh, all the way over to uh, Hawaii, the island of Oahu. Cool. And so that's been fun. Uh, you know, just truly been enjoying uh, living a more, uh, I, I would say a relaxed lifestyle in some ways. Uh, it's just an awesome place to be. And so really been enjoying that. Uh, but on a personal level, like I I have loved flying since I was a kid. 
And uh, that's really one of my passions. And so I, I fly a lot. Um, I've owned a plane in the past uh, uh, myself uh, when we moved to Hawaii, ended up selling it. But uh, that, you know, I continue to do it here. And so I'm always uh, enamored. I, uh, every time you fly the island, there's something new to see. Uh, and it's beautiful as you're kind of going around. So yeah, that's probably my other thing. Yeah, like outside of work and family. So yeah, that's great. And and we've got to see one of the photographs, the view of where of what you're looking through right now. Which uh, I must admit, there was uh, I, I never I've not felt jealousy uh, in a good way like that <laughs> in a long time. So well done to you. You know, that's great. And it's it's great that you know the fact that we do live in this world now where we can. It doesn't really matter where you work. You know, it's um, as long as it, it serves the purpose. And obviously that that thing that sits very low on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is Wi-Fi and internet. You know, as long as you got that tick. You know, so that's good. Yeah. It's certainly gotten a lot higher now uh, over the last year. Wi-Fi and, and internet is is top of the list now. Um, so, as a tech leader, then um, what kind of keeps you up at night? What uh, what stresses you out? I like to say I, I sleep really well, uh, just on a general basis. Um, I do have to tell you, like uh, one of the things that was really interesting when I got here. So, most of my career changes, uh, I think I've mentioned, I, I I love learning, so I've, I've usually switched jobs and, and companies, you know, every couple of years. Uh, so even within a company, I switched a job every couple of years. Um, and one um, of so I, I'm driven a lot, lot by learning. Um, shoot, forgot my chain of thought. I have to go back and redo this okay. one. So tech leadership, um, keep me up at night. Not much learning. What was I going to say? Totally forgot. Like it's gonna be a fun one. Uh, <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, I'll go back. And so, uh, not much. Not much uh, keeps me up at night. Uh, you know, I uh, I truly enjoy uh, uh, the fact that if you've built again all of the right things uh, within the company, then what happens is that you have uh, the right set of people solving the problems that you need them to solve, and. Um, you know, they're taking care of a lot of the details that you might be up at night worrying about um, as a result. And one of the things I was really happy to see when I joined this company was the fact that um, the prior team, uh, even prior to me, had really invested heavily in the platform and scale. Uh, it's the first company I've ever come to where I haven't had to worry about, you know, security and scale uh, as a result. So that was great. Like, uh, you know, rarely do you walk in. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned, like if I've moved jobs quite often, either within the company or outside. But the fact that I was able to walk in here and see that, you know, for the most part, I didn't have to worry. Um, at a prior company, and I, I won't name names here, I'd walked in and it turned out that 100% of the servers uh, were internet addressable, were publicly available on the web. Oh, including the, the core database server. Ouch. And so you uh, and so you never know, like, you know, you never know what you're walking yourself into as you're kind of switching uh, jobs and, and, and companies. And so, um, so I've been very happy at least uh, over here. So sleep pretty well as a result. Brilliant. Um, that's good. And um, as we come to cause the, uh, the, as we come towards the end of our podcast and our time together, just some uh, little kind of tips for the tech leaders out there. What advice would you give to aspiring tech leaders out there? How would it make their journey more fun to positions like yours uh, or even make it easy? 
Um, sure. So the the thing I always try and tell people is make sure you are having fun at whatever you're doing. It's really important because uh, if you're having fun, if you're passionate about what you're doing, it doesn't feel like work anymore. It's just what you do. Um, so superbly important. Um, second, surround yourself with people that you want to work with. Um, you will wake up in the morning and want to go to work because you're like, oh, I'm going to learn uh, something new uh, from this person, which probably is my, my third thing. I'm, I'm very heavily, uh, maybe overly so, uh, built on learning. I like change on a personal level. Um, and, you know, I thrive in change and I, I thrive in, in learning something new on a daily basis. Um, and, and so that's what really drives me. So I want to go do something new and interesting uh, on a daily basis. Um, so which also means that sometimes I don't do stuff that I, I don't want to do or I, I delegate it or, or, or such. But, uh, you know, if you're passionate about something, if you are learning something new, I think you're going to actually give it your best. Uh, and that's what makes execution really nice. You're going to actually have a good outcome, uh, in my opinion, as a result. Um, so that'd be the three things I would leave with you. Brilliant. Love it. And books. I love books. I don't know if you love books. Are there any books that you've read or come across or heard of that you think are important uh, as gateway books for uh, tech leaders or even just leaders out there? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry to say, but I, I tend not to read management books. It's just my failing or so. Uh, uh, I, I will listen to a podcast or two, just for the record, uh, and that are around leadership and um, usually around learning. Learning something new is, is what I care about. Uh, one of my favorite ones is Radio Lab. Um, it's a lot about like new and interesting topics I usually don't think about. Uh, there's a really interesting uh, podcast called Oologies. It's about you know different types of technologies, uh, or it could be about you know uh, geology as a um, uh, as a subject and, and so they also kind of explore some really interesting ones uh the knowledge project uh is a fun one uh it's uh, again uh i like the variety yeah. of uh of different things and so i i tend to like gravitate towards that uh again trying to like you know learn something new and interesting uh, on a regular basis we should be driving a lot i used to listen to podcasts all the time and yes. in some ways i've like over the last year listen to less because of uh, COVID and, and, you know, the driving time is almost zero from my bedroom to my office. So um, makes yeah. it a little bit harder to kind of keep in touch, but yeah. As we come to the full stop of the podcast, what's your final key takeaway that you want to gift tech leader men and women out there before you leave? <laughs> Higher rights. Uh, to do that solves 99% of your problems. Love it. That's a lovely, nice, simple, elegant tip. Thank you for your time. Uh, it's been great having you on board, sir. Thank you, DC. That was great.